where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, what an epic interview with Kane, man. It was great. Yeah, I, I really think that these this DeFi Founders series that we're doing, that we started with Stani with our last episode and, and this episode with Kane. And then I really think that these episodes are really going to be a fantastic snapshot of the the pre-bull market before before like all this explosion of innovation and development happens, which you know I'm crossing my fingers does happen, right? And so what we're trying to do with these episodes is we are both trying to focus in on the founders of these specific protocols, the actual individuals themselves, you know, Stani, Kane, Sergey, Hugh, uh, and and focus in on exactly what about them created these protocols, but then also simultaneously create like a canonical what is Ave, what is Synthetics, what is Chainlink episode at the same time, and also create a snapshot for where these protocols are when the start of the bull market really got roaring, right? So that's what these episodes are about, and that's what this episode with Kane of Synthetics is all about. Kane himself is a really interesting figure, and he's done a, a ton of, of podcasts, right? So, But the reason why we wanted to get him specifically on is really get the background on Kane himself, right? Because Kane is a pretty interesting guy. He's a, he's a crypto anarchist, and crypto anarchists are super interesting. And so we, we get into that conversation, which I've never seen Kane talk about before. And so that was kind of my big, big highlight of this, of this episode is kind of seeing how Kane thinks in the world and how that how he thinks and how that got related into the synthetics protocol. Ryan, what did you take away from this episode? Yeah, I think the the patterns and the archetypes of these crypto native founders are basically, they're really setting the playbook for how other DeFi protocols are going to be formed in the future, right? So you see, you see these uh, protocols like constantly learning from each other on, you know, how to, how to build a community, how to, um, you know, create your incentives. In our episode with Stani last week, he talked about how his Avonomics, the Avonomics of the Ave protocol, basically inspired by a whole slew of other DeFi protocols. So what we're really seeing is this entire ecosystem leveling up together. And some of these protocols, quite honestly, they're experimenting. They're flying by the seat of their pants. But when something works, when they iterate and something works, then that ripples across the entire ecosystem and it becomes like a um, a pattern, a best practice for DeFi protocols moving forward. So I think these episodes are key if you're looking for what those patterns are. So you can identify the next synthetics, you can identify the next Ave, you can identify the next crypto native founder and front run the opportunity, as we always say here. This is also awesome because we got a chance to hear about synthetics roadmap. And uh, toward the end, Kane really spelled out what is happening next in three areas. Then he sort of added a fourth. And uh, I don't know, left me very bullish on DeFi, left me particularly bullish on ETH, uh, which uh, you know, I'm usually trending in that direction anyway, uh, but also bullish on, on what Synthetics has planned. So it's a great episode to get up to speed on everything Synthetics. We, we start 
with the the basics of what it is, but then we get down to sort of the 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 depth and the meat of what it um, can be in the future. And uh, yeah, fantastic listen. Yeah, so far we're two for two on both of these DeFi founders, leaving us with a particularly bullish sentiment at the end of their podcast. Uh, the the flow through this podcast was pretty good. Uh, so we, like I said, we start with talking about Kane and his specific politics and personality, how that related to synthetics. Then we talk about uh, you know the the brutal bear market and growing community during that bear market. Uh, and then we talk about rising the ranks of DeFi using the conviction and the strength of the community and really what was the recipe that Synthetics created that ultimately created their success. Uh, and then, as we said, we go into the roadmap for Synthetics and future predictions. Uh, the episode speaks with itself. We don't need a long intro. So I think, Ryan, we're just going to go ahead and get right into the podcast. But first, we're going to talk about our sponsors. One of the tools I've started to use recently is Zapper. For those of you that were a part of the 2017 bull market, it was characterized by just opening up Blockfolio and refreshing it over and over and over again. And also anytime you ever made a trade, you would have to go into Blockfolio and manually input that trade information to make sure that your portfolio that you think that you have matches what you actually have. With Zapper, you don't have to do any of that anymore because all you have to do with Zapper is input your Ethereum addresses and then Zapper will give you a really elegant report as to where all your money is. So there will never ever be any disconnect between the money that you think that you have and the money that Zapper reports to you. Zapper looks directly on chain and gives you a nice portfolio summary of all your assets and how many assets and your, all of your debt and all of your lending positions, all of your positions all at once. So there's no more editing your portfolio because Zapper just does it for you. One thing that I thought was really useful about Zappers was when I plugged my wallets in, I found that I had submitted liquidity to Uniswap forever ago, and without Zapper, I would have probably lost that forever, because Zapper knows where your money is better than you do. It's also the gateway to investing your money into this ever-expanding list of available DeFi platforms like Curve, Balancer, Uniswap, Yearn. In the bankless nation, there is this growing number of money Legos and keeping track of them all is just super overwhelming, which is why you could just go to Zapper and Zapper will, will solve the problem of there just being too many money Legos to choose from. So check them out at zapper.fi, enter your Ethereum addresses and check out your portfolio and see if there's anything that you missed. Your Ethereum address is a bankless bank account, but here's the problem. It doesn't have a human readable name. It's represented by this long hexadecimal string that no one can read. Unstoppable Domains has the solution to that problem. It provides a domain name for your Ethereum address. So instead of telling someone to send you funds to 0xE3BA blah blah blah, you can tell them to send funds to yourname.crypto, a domain name for your Ethereum address. At unstoppabledomains.com, you can search for blockchain domains like this and find tools to easily launch websites on decentralized web technology like IPFS. You can even have Unstoppable Domains help you manage your .crypto or .eth or even .zil domain name addresses at their Unstoppable Domains manager. Websites have domain names, .com, .org, your bankless bank account on Ethereum should have a domain name too. So go to unstoppabledomains.com, register a domain name for your Ethereum address now, unstoppabledomains.com. All right, let's get into the interview with Kane.
Bankless Nation, we are so excited to have Kane Warwick from Synthetics on our show. He describes himself as the formerly semi-benevolent dictator of the Synthetics Foundation, but now he's currently aspiring Synthetics DAO super delegate. Kane is really the founding father of DeFi, liquidity mining, and all of the things that, that we're seeing going on in the space today. Kane, it's great to have you. We're super excited about this. How are you doing, sir? Uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. I uh, really appreciate it. All right. So first question, as one of the founding fathers of all of this DeFi liquidity mining, is has it gone too far? Do you have any regrets about starting this whole <laughs> kind of trend? Kane, what have you done? Yeah. I know. You know, it's, it's actually, it's so funny. Uh, I woke up this morning and the first message that I, I saw was uh, from a guy in Discord and he was like, do you ever think like, what have I done here? <laughs> and I was, that was literally the first message that, that I saw. And I was like, what's gone wrong? I was like, what's happening? And I like immediately went and like looked at like sushi and saw the migration happen. So, um, you know, I think, uh, I think at times, you know, it, it has gotten a little, uh, a little crazy. Um, but, you know, I've always been a, a big advocate for, you know, experimentation. And, and so I think that this idea of like distilling some of these incentives and, and really kind of testing the edges of them is, you know, not necessarily the worst thing. So you like the experimentation is what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's good. I think it's net positive in the end. So Kane, you've gone on a bajillion podcasts. And so there, there's plenty of, of podcasts that are just like, all right, what's synthetics? But I, of all of the uh, podcasts I've heard with, with you, Kane, I've, I've yet to hear one that talks about your personal politics or your personal attitudes about life. And from what I've listened to, I've gotten the gist that you're kind of a crypto anarchist. Uh, if, is that right? And can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so so you know, I definitely uh, have like a an anarchist uh, bent, right? And and you know, it comes from uh, I guess like this you know anti-authoritarian uh, viewpoint of you know power structures need to be justified, and and you know anything uh, you know any power structure, any sort of hierarchy or or you know authority that can't uh, be legitimized, you know, should be torn down. Um, and you know, I think that that's kind of the the sort of core of my uh, my worldview from a political standpoint. So anti-authoritarian then, like, has it always been that way, Kane, or was this sort of a, an awakening at some point in your life? No, I think it's always, it's always been that way. Um, you know, uh, probably, you know, coming from uh, my upbringing, I guess, right? Like, um, you know, I, uh, my dad was a professional tennis player. So he was, um, you know, pretty intense person, um, is a pretty intense person. And, you know, definitely, uh, our, our family was, uh, was, you know, I've got three younger brothers. So there's, you know, four, four boys competing all the time. So I, I you know, we always had this, uh, this, you know, really intense, highly competitive environment in, in my uh, house. And so I think, uh, you know, at some point, uh, kind of challenging that and, and sort of questioning, you know, uh, authority just became ingrained in me. When did, and when did you get into crypto? And would you say that all of those same values came before crypto or kind of after crypto and crypto helped instantiate them? Definitely before, you know, I, I, I was kind of, you know, someone that would read uh, things like Chomsky and, and you know, a, a bunch of different uh, sort of political uh, viewpoints, you know, in my kind of uh, late teens and, and early 20s. Um, and, you know, just really had a, a strong uh, kind of view that the status quo was, was not 
quite adequate and you know that there are a lot of issues in in the status quo in terms of you know how uh how governance worked etc and so i think that when i when i first saw uh bitcoin you know to be honest i, I didn't really get it i i read uh the slash dot thread that i think a lot of people read um you know in like 2011 um and you know coming from uh, a payments background and, and a retail background um, you know, it just it didn't quite sync with me. It, it was probably a couple of years later before I, I really, um, you know, saw the value from like a, a political perspective rather than just as a, a payment mechanism. Being a crypto anarchist of sorts, what is your hope for how crypto platforms, crypto, crypto protocols, how they help organize people? Like how, what, what is the futuristic sci-fi version of crypto that you see in your head? Well, you know, this is this is part of the reason why I've been uh, so bullish on tokens for for such a long time, right? You know, even through through the bear market, where you know tokens were seen as um, you know this uh, this terrible kind of black mark, right, on on you know people who had uh, done ICOs and, and that sort of thing. And the reason behind that is that I believe that you know they're such a powerful coordination mechanism, and that you know if you set up a, a system of rules that is is very clear. Um, and you're open and anyone can participate that you know having a token that kind of uh, unites uh, that rule set is is a really powerful way of, uh, of driving behavior and so you know the idea that you can create these coordination games and you know provide services without needing some sort of like top-down you know hierarchy or, or you know structure I think is is really exciting and we're starting to see that you know and, and obviously the first uh, kind of wave of this is very financial in nature, um, but I think there is the possibility to extend it, you know, further than that, and and really, you know, kind of open it up and and have these sort of self-governing, uh, you know, uh, systems that that don't require a central authority to to mediate them. How is this reflected in the synthetics protocol, right? Because all crypto protocols have values baked into them to some degree. So, how would you say that these values have been worked into synthetics? I think it kind of comes from our, our community, um, you know, where I've been a, a participant in the community from day one, you know, even when there were only maybe 10 of us that actually cared about the, you know, the project, right? Um, and and so, you know, my, my view has always been engage with the community as a community member, um, you know, and even though I do occupy a privilege position as the founder, I've really tried to, you know, not exercise that power and, and not, you know, not leverage it. Um, and, you know, just to, to try and, uh, you know, advocate for whatever position I'm advocating, um, you know, on its merits, right, rather than, you know, relying on some kind of authority. And so I, I think that the people who uh, participate in our community and, and who've been kind of attracted to that have a very similar viewpoint, right? Like they believe that, you know, the, the kind of argument should be one on, on its own merits and that anyone can participate. And that's another reason why I think, you know, we haven't gone down the, uh, the sort of on-chain uh, governance path, right? We've, we've kind of stuck with this idea of, um, you know, rough consensus and, and letting debate kind of, you know, live in the community and to decide things. So, Kane, something else I, I actually just learned uh, today is you wrote a novel, right? <laughs> I did. I did. Uh, somewhat um, stupidly. Um, but <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> it's never a bad decision to write a book, game. So Yeah, you know, you know it, was, it, it was one of those things where, like, um, 
I, I read a lot, right? Um, you know, I, I read a lot. I read a lot of uh, nonfiction and a lot of science fiction and, and you know, fantasy and stuff. And uh, I was reading um, uh, a Nick Bostrom uh, book about AI. And there was this is example. It, is this like, uh, super intelligence? Super intelligence. Yeah, yeah, super intelligence. Love it. And so, um, and, you know, he, he gets to the point about like the, the paperclip generating, you know, optimizer, right? That like is, is optimizing for, um, you know, uh, generating as many paperclips as, as possible. Um, and I, I, you know, was reading it at night, fell asleep and, and kind of, you know, it was really stuck with me. And then the next morning, uh, I kind of had this idea for like a short story that kind of extended that, uh, that, you know, thought experiment. And so I started writing it and, you know, throughout the rest of the day, like I, you know, put down like, I don't know, 8,000 words or something like that. Like it just, it was kind of like flowing out. And so then I was like, well, maybe this is a bit bigger than uh, a short story. And I'd never written anything longer than a short story before. And that was a huge mistake because the amount of uh, pain and suffering that you go through in the editing process, I just was not uh, prepared for it. So it ended up taking me like almost 18 months to finish it because I went through like you know, five different uh, revisions and wow. uh, really changed a bunch of stuff. So I'm a bit of a perfectionist, which is which is why uh, start, starting to write a novel was maybe not the best uh, the best plan, given that it was a side project. Well, good for you for sticking with it. But like, so I I've read that book too, uh, Super Intelligence. I think um, Elon Musk was talking about it for a while, and just it kind of tuned me into it. And I got to say that book uh, somewhat haunted me, right? Because you part of the thesis uh, is that basically AI is inevitable, and uh, quite possibly an evil AI is the out uh, is the end outcome of all of this. And you know, Nick's kind of cautioned to us is we should be preparing for that now. In fact, I think he he works as an ethicist uh, to like come up with um, protocols to uh, rein in the the future AI that's coming. I I almost wonder. So um, Peter Thiel, I think. Has, has kind of painted this contrast where he talks about AI being almost an authoritarian type of technology versus uh, crypto, blockchain, being a, uh, a more classically liberal type of technology, an anti-authoritarian uh, technology. And I, I'm wondering if that kind of fed into your interest in that, that book, Superintelligence, and uh, the novel itself, this, this whole kind of anti-authoritarian like, I guess, um, path that you've been on your entire life, it seems. Did that feed into it? Well, you know, so uh, I definitely had the naive uh, view of, uh, of AI, right, up to that point. And, and you know, I, I, uh, I definitely spent a lot of time, you know, reading about, um, you know, general uh, artificial intelligence and, you know, for, for years, right, like tons of uh, books, you know. Um, and I think reading uh, Bostrom's book, it was haunting. It was it was really scary. Like he really painted a picture uh, of you know this alternative uh, approach. And, and you know I think I, I'm fairly optimistic about the potential for technological progress. But th that definitely was an eye opening uh, uh, kind of <laughs> experience reading and it. And what I remember I, in reading it was how fast it could happen, like in a blink of an mm -hmm. eye, right? So it gets to human IQ, you know, 100 IQ, 120 IQ, right? Yep. And then a week later, it could be well beyond humans' capability to even rein it in. Yeah, exactly. And and that was part of, you know, writing the the novel, I think. Originally, the short story was like just a way for me to kind of, uh, you know, take this very sort of troubling alternative viewpoint that I hadn't really, uh, you know, considered previously and process it, you know, as a way of kind of processing it. And obviously, it took on a life of its own and, and took a lot 
longer than I would have liked, but you know, I think it was it was very helpful for me to to kind of incorporate that into my worldview. But I do think it's a little bit, you know, like uh, I, I don't know, um, you know, the heat death of the universe or something like that. It's like a thing that you know is true, but you kind of have to just you know continue Ignore operating. It. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like if we sat around all day, like worried about like you know this idea of like an AGI uh, emerging, you know, in ten seconds and, and you know the world. Uh, being over, uh, you know, maybe maybe that's too pessimistic, right? Maybe we should be trying harder to to prevent it. But I, I kind of feel like it's either inevitable or it's not. And you know, the hope is that we have some benevolent uh, AGI rather than um, you know something that uh, that is uh, malicious. And I, I I do think, at least for me, right? So uh, AI could grow very powerful. We're already seeing it today in centralized companies like Google and um, you know Baidu and all of these uh, all of these companies. But um, crypto is almost like a little bit of the antidote to that, right? It's It restores some balance in the universe. It restores some self-sovereignty for the individual. And we're starting with money systems, but um, there, there could be other systems. So I find personally, like after reading, you know, some of Nick's work and other things, it's just like, that's that's kind of the, the side I want to be on, <laughs> Um, at, at least right now is, is like more the decentralization side of things that's helping to restore a little bit of the balance of, um, you know, what centralized AI could, could eventually become, but, um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, <laughs> agreed. And, uh, you know, I think, I think there's like the, the, the risk is really in opacity, right. And this is where, you know, crypto, uh, is so powerful, right? Like when the rule system that you're operating under is opaque and, and you can't, you know, understand what the, the implications are, you know, it's impossible to kind of see the, the rules. Um, that's where, you know, power can really aggregate and, and become abusive. I think when everyone's operating, um, you know, on the same rule set and the rules are very clear, uh, at least you have that, you know, advantage where you understand how everyone else is playing. Um, so I think that that is something that I see in, in crypto as, you know, a very powerful driver for, um, you know, maybe uh, the potential for more fair outcomes, uh, you know, in, in these systems. So, Kane, you, you wrote this novel out of just pure inspiration and, and motivation, which, you know, is something in of itself like a, a high effort activity. Right. And then ever in doing some research for this podcast, uh, I went to the Synthetics slash Haven blog which started in September of 2017. And you've been just pumping out blog posts after blog posts ever since then, right? And then and then not to mention just being the leader for this crazy, awesome DeFi protocol. Where does this motivation come from? Like, where do you get the energy and meaning behind what you are doing so that when you wake up in the morning, you're ready to go and, and build something? Like, what what motivates you to, What yeah, what motivates you? Uh, you know, one of my favorite uh, books to, to stay on the, the book thread is The Hard Thing About Hard Things um, by Ben Horowitz. And, and I think, you know, he talks about the idea that like hard things are the reward in themselves, right? Just doing something that's really challenging. And I think that, you know, there's, there's definitely certain people who have, uh, you know, a mindset. And I, I think I fall into this category of, you know, it's just fun to do difficult things um, for, you know, it's its own reward. And so, you know, uh, I think I'm, I'm a little bit uh, crazy like that, where, you know, I, I have this kind of perfectionistic streak and, and feel, um, you know, really driven to be challenged. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm not challenged, then I get bored really quickly. And, and so, you know, waking up at the moment and just 
being uh you know kind of inundated with like the the DeFi fire hose it's you know it's definitely confronting uh, and i think everyone's feeling that um but you know there is an aspect of like trying to kind of synthesize it all and and you pull it all together into some coherent uh view you know is really fun at the same time right so you know you got to be having uh some fun but you know it's definitely it's definitely challenging i've been doing startups for a long time and you know they're they're days where you kind of wake up and you're like, this has been 20 years of, uh, of startup life and, you know, you feel a little bit burnt out, but I think it's, it's fun enough to kind of keep going, um, you know, at the moment. And so what's the goal? Like when you are, when you do decide to wake up and, and decide that, you know, no longer is startup life fit for you and instead walking in the mountains is now fit for you. Like what what do you have hoped to, to achieve? Like, what are you trying to change the world to to be like, or or what's your trying? What's the mark that you're trying to leave upon the world? You know, I, I think uh, I have a very strong uh, sort of streak of like trying to achieve fairness and and trying to achieve uh, equitable outcomes. Um, you know, I, I feel very strongly about that. I think that you know, arbitrary, and this comes back again to like anti-authoritarian, um, you know, viewpoints, right? Like. The, the idea that someone can exercise arbitrary power over someone else, I find to be really abhorrent. And so, you know, to build uh, a system or, you know, to contribute to systems being built uh, where that, you know, is uh, is limited and the ability for people to, to abuse power is limited. I think, you know, even if it's not necessarily, you know, synthetics being a, a world changing thing, just contributing to, you know, crypto and DeFi, uh, I think is is something that, you know, keeps me motivated and, and, you know, I'm hopeful that uh, we can kind of continue experimenting and, and, you know, add to this, you know, body of knowledge about how you coordinate uh, behavior and, and, you know, uh, achieve things like that without uh, necessarily, um, you know, uh, looking for some specific outcome, right? You know, um, I don't, I don't think it, it really matters uh, what the outcome is, as long as, you know, we're kind of building up this uh, this you know uh, new kind of technology and, and new way of coordinating people. So we're in the middle of our DeFi founder series here on Bankless, and, and we started with uh, Stani from Ave last week. We're now here with Kane from Synthetics. And one of the questions that we're asking everyone came from our episode with Vance Spencer of Framework, uh, which was also kind of like the VC start to this whole thing. And, and one of the concepts that he talked about was when he is looking for you know, DeFi founders and then also DeFi protocols to like invest in or you put their skin in the game into. They they said they frequently ask the question for, for protocols that are looking to hand over governance over the protocol to the community. The question is, are you really about that life? Because that's a different lifestyle. That's a different choice than running a C-Corp with, you know, a board of directors and, and publicly owned company, right? It's a different, it's a different goal. And so, so Kane, why are you about that life? Like, what what about you is particularly suited to building this community-owned and operated protocol? I've always, I've always, you know, in, in all the startups that I've run, uh, you know, some of my friends and and people that are close to me have always kind of pointed out that you know one of the the common threads with all of them is that there you know tends to be a community that kind of uh, coalesces around them. Um, that gets really passionate about it and, and really cares about it. And I think, you know, part of that is the this kind of uh, process of engagement, right? Of, of you know, genuinely uh, engaging with people and, and wanting them to contribute. And I think a lot of people will pay 
lip service to that process, right? But really, they do want to retain power and they want to retain uh, some sense of control. Um, but you know, I, I genuinely do want to engage and, and kind of hand over control uh, as much as as possible, uh, you know, to uh, this this protocol. Like it's it's something that you, you want to be the the super delegate instead of the bene- benevolent dictator, right? That's what it says. A hundred percent. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, even though we don't have superdelegates yet, you know, when we do, um, you know, my, my genuine hope is that people, uh, you know, think that I'm a, a you know, viable candidate for that role. And, you know, we might end up in a situation where we have, you know, seven uh, people that are superdelegates that are, you know, sort of responsible for, um, you know, helping to kind of direct the, the next um, you know, phase of the the project. Um, and, you know, obviously I want to be a part of that. Right. But I also want to, to have earned it rather than, you know, be kind of grandfathered in because I, you know, happen to be so here. You want to, you want to be a voice in the protocol, not the voice in the synthetics protocol in time over time. Absolutely. And, you know, this is already happening, right? Like people do not listen to it. If you go in and like, honestly, if you go in and, and look at Discord, right? Like I'm constantly advocating for things and they're like, no, not, we're just not doing that. We don't, we don't think you're right on this. So it's, you so know, it's you're already getting overruled then on, on things. Oh, all the time. Are, are there the times time. where like, the, I mean, even in the last are there week, times yeah. where you're like, oh, you know, the community is right about that. And I was actually wrong and it led to a better decision. And I guess, you know, the opposite. Do you, do you feel like sometimes the community's made bad decisions? You know, I think in the, in the early days, everyone was very passionate. Everyone felt, you know, very, uh, very strongly about, you know, the direction that things should be, be going in, but it was also very cohesive, right? Like we all were really bought into what we were trying to do. Um, and so, you know, we would have debates and disagreements, but, you know, generally it was about like, how do we achieve something? And I think what's kind of shifted as the community has grown is it's less uh, debates about how do we achieve something, but, you know, sometimes even like, what are we trying to achieve? Um, which I think is an important thing, but, you know, even, uh, you know, recently, uh, probably, I, I think the biggest one, and I've talked about this before, is the monetary policy change, right? And, you know, when we changed the uh, the, the inflation schedule, um, there was a, a community member, Delta Tiger, who, you know, was advocating for it. And I said, no, this is a, a bad idea. Like, we don't want to go down that path. We want to, you know, have like a, a you know, coherent uh, monetary policy. And he advocated for it you know, pushed it through and, you know, it was definitely a good change. Like that was a really positive This was change. basically the decision, right? I, I, I guess I introduced you as, as kind of the, you know, father of, uh, founding father of DeFi liquidity mining, right? But um, the original design for synthetics was like more like Bitcoin, right? Where it would be some kind of fixed cap and there wouldn't be a change to issuance policy. It was very kind of regimented, right? That was the prevailing thought at the time. So you're saying like this whole shift to liquidity mining wasn't even your idea. It came from the community. <laughs> it, that's true. So, so you know, um, I basically said, uh, you know, I had this idea um, when I think this is going back to like 2018, right? So um, I think it was around DevCon. So like, you know, maybe October or whatever of 2018. And we were clearly not getting traction, right? Like we weren't getting people to, uh, to you know, uh, stake. We, you know, we we're having trouble with engagement. And uh, I started talking about this idea of, you know, changing the monetary policy and, uh, you know, essentially, uh, 
shifting to you know something more like a, a halving right like to you know introduce inflation and we would have this halving process and so that that initial process of changing the monetary policy to reward stakers was pushed through by me but the the stupid part of that was this halving component right of like each year it would halve it just created like unnecessary risk and and basically six months later someone came in and said that's a really dumb idea and i said no it's not and then everyone actually said, yeah, no, it is a dumb idea. We should change it. And they did. All right. So for folks who have not heard about synthetics, we, we want this to be kind of a canonical episode about synthetics in the future. Um, could you just do a quick explain it like I'm five of the protocol? What does it do and what problem is it solving, Kane? So basically what it allows you to do is hold a token that gives you uh, exposure to uh, any asset. That the protocol supports on ethereum so you know on ethereum uh you want price exposure to bitcoin you want to be able to hold a token that will uh you know move like like a bitcoin uh, and so what the protocol allows you to do is is hold that token it uses oracles to essentially uh you know lock the the token to that price and it's you know effectively the same as holding a Bitcoin, right? With obviously some, some different properties. Um, and the same thing goes for, you know, other assets like gold, silver, you know, you can hold a, an ounce of gold that's tokenized um, and you're able to get your know, price exposure the same way as if you were, you know, holding a, a, you know, one ounce gold bar. These things are called synthetics, right? That's what a synthetic is. It's essentially a um, kind of a, a, a price tracker for all of these assets, though it's not the actual asset itself that's getting traded around. It's just kind of the price representation of that asset. It's, and it, it's importantly, exactly. it's supposed to be redeemable for an equal amount of that asset in real life. Although it is not a claim on the real life asset, it should be able to redeem, be redeemable for the same amount of value of that real asset. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's no, you can't, you know, front up and, and convert uh, one token, you know, uh, one XAU, SXAU token for um, gold, but uh, you know, in theory, you should be able to convert that into, you know, the right amount of dollars to go and buy a gold bar and buy an equivalent yeah. amount. Right. And so how do explain how the oracles get integrated in synthetics and what the oracles do? So uh, we made a decision uh, about 18 months ago to work with Chainlink um, to implement uh, their oracle system. Um, and we worked really closely with them since to, to get this done. And, you know, very excitingly, finally, we've made the transition. So we've moved all of our oracles over to Chainlink. And, you know, it essentially allows us to, uh, to kind of hand over the complexity of managing this Oracle network uh, to, you know, people that that's all they do. Um, and so we can, you know, focus on, on the, the things that, you know, make sense for us to focus on and, and kind of outsource this, uh, this price feed component. Um, so, you know, it's a big deal. It's also very helpful for decentralization because, you know, previously, uh, we were running an internal Oracle that, you know, was, um, again, very opaque. People didn't know what the rules were. Um, you know, it wasn't clear where the price feeds were coming, et cetera. So we've now moved away from that. And, and I think it's made the protocol much more open and decentralized subsequently. And Oracles are crucial for synthetics, right? Because all of the uh, synthetic assets available in the synthetic marketplace, they need to be, they need to know what the price of their real world correlate is, right? So if you buy a, a tokenized ver a synthetic asset of one ounce of gold, 
what the Oracle does is it takes outside world data of the real world gold price from some source and the Chainlink Oracle reports that to the synthetic marketplace to tell the synthetic marketplace to price all of the synthetic gold tokens appropriately, tell them what price it should be. And then we can copy and paste the same model for all possible you know, assets, right? Like the S&P uh, 500 or the Tesla stock or Apple stock, or you know, maybe something even crazier like uh, the... Uh, the population of a country, like so long as it can be like reported by Chainlink, it can be turned into a synthetic asset on synthetics. Correct? That's correct. Exactly. Yeah. As long as there's uh, enough liquidity in the the external market as well, so we don't we don't want the you know the market to be uh, manipulatable. Of course, of course. And so, how does the SNX asset come into play here? Where does the SNX asset get involved? So it's essentially the, the collateral token for the network. Um, so it, it's this you know, coordination point uh, to get everyone to come together and you know, operate within this, this rule set. So if you're holding SNX, you stake SNX and you're able to, uh, to issue uh, debt, which you know, tracks the, these um, price oracles and uh, the, the fees that uh, accrue from people exchanging uh, different synthetic assets, um, you know, between each other. So if someone goes from synthetic Bitcoin to synthetic gold, they pay a fee. All of those fees go into a pool, and the SNX uh, stakers who have been collateralizing the network get their pro rata share of those fees each week. And so this is how synthetic assets come into existence, right? Like we don't we don't just get to start with all of these assets. They need to be created somehow. And so what someone does is they take the SNX token, say they take a thousand dollars of the SNX token, and then they uh, they 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 deposit it into uh, synthetics in a comparable way that they deposit ether into MakerDAO or something. And then they have some amount of credit based on their deposits, and that credit can be turned into a synthetic asset by choosing which oracle to make that uh, that credit turn into an asset by, right? And so you can have, if you have like $200 worth of credit by your SNX deposits, you can turn that into $200 worth of, to, of synthetic gold or synthetic Tesla. Was all that correct? That's right. That's exactly right. But that's not the only thing that, that SNX does because the other half of SNX is governance over synthetics the protocol right so it's this dual collateral token for the snx marketplace and the governance token over how the snx marketplace works how has that relationship between like this dual purpose of uh synthetics how has that relationship kind of been absorbed and understood by the community like how are people thinking about this this dual relationship so you know at the moment the the snx token uh does not give you governance rights um so you know the the governance process that we use is very similar to ethereum right you know it's not a, a direct uh token vote you know based on how much ether you have right uh that feeds into the the eip process and, and we have a similar approach where you know we've got a community they're all token holders uh but you know your ability to uh, kind of advocate for a specific change or, you know, for something that you want to see in the protocol is not limited to your token holding. You know, it's, it's actually your reputation within the community that is what really drives, you know, your, your ability to kind of uh, make changes and propose modifications. And I think that, you know, that's something that 
maybe is is a little bit different to some of the protocols that we've seen recently where you know they are using direct on-chain uh governance and you know i've got some some serious concerns about uh you know the the implications of that i think eventually we will get to a point where um you know we have this delegated you know voting process and, and people can delegate towards uh specific um you know people who are um, looking to kind of join uh, this governing council essentially um, but at the moment uh the process is is very you know rough it's it's a rough consensus process and we need to get to a point where consensus is really strong uh in the community before we make any changes and there's a risk of that as well obviously which is you know ossification like like we've seen in bitcoin where it becomes really hard to change things and i think this is where you know eventually we will get to a break point where it becomes too hard to change things through rough consensus and we actually need to move to some form of on-chain governance but we've been taking that very very slowly for you know for the kind of reasons that i stated there yeah. Okay. Pardon me for for the the mistake. Uh, the the dual the duality of the synthetic token model I, I should have been referring to was the fact that the SNX token does have rights over the cash flow Correct. over the protocol, exactly, right? Yeah. And so uh, the SNX token is both the collateral for generating assets and then also the asset that is uh, has a claim on the cash flow of the system. And so uh, if people will remember about a, a year ago. And uh, around then, I, I was ki kind of known, loosely known as generally a, an SNX asset skeptic because of this self-recursion, right? Like the, the asset, the token, the, the quote unquote equity over the protocol is also the collateral of the protocol, which to me, I kind of saw that as like a dangerous feedback loop. Mm. But I kind of now consider that, I, mean, I kind of think that that attitude came out of like an, a bear market attitude, like a pessimistic attitude, because there's also nothing more like awesome in the world of crypto than feedback loops, right? Self-recursive feedback loops. And, you know, let it be known that Ether and Ethereum and proof of stake operates in the same sort of feedback loop. So now in my mind, in my 2020 mind, uh, I'm now actually like relatively bullish on just the feedback loop between SNX, the asset being both the collateral for synthetic assets while, and also uh, generating, collecting the fees from the, the synthetics marketplace. Uh, and so has, has there been any community discussion or community like uh, um, understanding about the, the duality of the both the cash flow slash collateral model of the synthetic asset? There, there has, and you know, this is something that we we talk about, you know, a lot. But I think to be fair to maybe you know, uh, twenty nineteen, uh, David, um, you know, the 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 reality is that we are still limited, right? Like, you know, the the using SNX as the only collateral is somewhat limiting, um, and so you know, we're pushing ahead very very aggressively to add. Uh, ether um, as a collateral to borrow, not just uh, synthetic ether, which is you know the current uh, ability that you have, but to actually be able to borrow SUSD as well, um, because you know in in the current environment in a bull market, um, you know there's a lot of demand for decentralized stablecoins, both you know Dai and SUSD, um, and so we need to have a lever to to kind of you know extend. Uh, the supply and and you know that's something that we're we're working on really closely. So I think some of your concerns are still very valid, right? And and you know, we still have to solve some of these issues. So uh, I don't think it's necessarily a, a solved um, a solved problem. But to to go back to the question around like cash flow, I think 
you know, it, it's funny, right? Because uh, in 2018, you know, 2019, the, the skepticism around tokens was, uh, you know, at its peak, right? Um, and my view was always that if you wanted a token to have value, it had to, to you know, accrue some cash flow, right? Like it wasn't going to accrue value just from being a payment token that, you know, was, was kind of uh, operating in this walled garden. I, I, you know, I was always pretty skeptical of, uh, of that idea. And so I think that, you know, the, the thing that limited people from uh, approaching things this way was like a, a regulatory fear, right? They were worried about, you know, looking like a security, et cetera. And so I think, you know, one of the things that synthetics has is, is contributed, um, you know, hopefully is to reduce that fear and, and for people to, to realize that, you know, a passive cash flow asset is a security, but a token that's like this coordination mechanism that allows you to participate in an ecosystem and do work and receive fees for it is something else entirely, right? It's, it's obviously not, um, you know, uh, the exact definition of a security. And so I think that one of the things that we've really contributed is, is, you know, to push that, uh, you know, to open up the, the Overton window on token design and, and you know, make people more comfortable with the idea of, uh, you know, these cash flow generating tokens. You had a fantastic thread on the Overton window of, um, you know, capital and how there's a range of new uh, options that DeFi founders should consider. We definitely want to talk about that in a little bit. Um, but, but is this what you just described? Is that essentially the upside thesis for SNX that, um, a ton of cash would be generated basically by the synthetics protocol and that would have a value accrual mechanism that feeds back into SNX. Is that the, the gist of the upside thesis? That's it. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's, that's the idea that, you know, if we all come together and, and create this service that allows people to have price exposure to, you know, almost any asset on Ethereum, that there'll be a lot of demand for that. And that demand will, you know, result in, in a lot of, uh, you know, free cash flow that, that flows through the network and, and ultimately to token. We were talking to Stani about this, about, you know, what you mentioned uh, to Kane about the 2018, 2019, where everyone was bearish, right? So 2019, <laughs> January 2019, David, or January 2019, uh, Ryan could have purchased SNX for four cents. <laughs> Not to make you feel bad, David, yeah. but like right now it's $5. So yeah. We had some uh, opportunity costs there, and so did everyone. But like, I guess to be fair, um, it, it it felt very much felt like at that time that um, you know DeFi was dead, that kind of Ethereum was maybe I don't know just barely hanging on, that uh, tokens, all tokens were futility tokens. None of them could uh, <laughs> deliver any any value. Uh, and now here we are, right now, and SNX is like twelve thousand percent up in price, like. Market cap of 2.5 million to like 500 million, right? And like a little over a year later, um, like absolutely insane. <laughs> I think uh, our, <laughs> our conversation with Vance from from Framework sort of illustrated the power of a contrarian bet in DeFi in 2018 and 2019. But how did how did that feel for you on your side, right? So uh, you're you're more than kind of an investor, obviously in SNX, because you're actually investing your life. In, in the protocol and you're investing your, your team time and, and that sort of thing. You mentioned uh, Ben's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And I remember this always stuck out with me. He, he talked about startups having this uh, WFIO moment, this like we're effed, it's over moment um, before hmm. they kind of come out on the other side. Did you ever have a moment like that where you thought, 
synthetics is never going to work or even uh, before Haven is never going to work? Yeah. I mean, you know, in late 2018, uh, mid to late 2018, you know, regulated stable coins, uh, and a combination of regulated stable coins and DAI really had marginalized the, the utility of the protocol. Um, and so, you know, we were in the situation where we had to make a decision to either pivot, um, you know, or just keep driving off a cliff. Um, and, you know, we, we were definitely in a, a bad place, I think, at the end of 2018, early 2019, where, you know, okay, we had enough runway to kind of keep going, but clearly not enough to be able to take on Circle, right? You know, or, uh, you know, Paxos or, um, you know, uh, you know, any of these, these regulated stable coins that we're, we're starting to see pop up. And so, you know, we, we just basically decided to, to double down and, you know, uh, accelerate the movement to this multi-currency system. Um, and that's where we started to see some product market fit. So, you know, uh, I think that was, that was probably the moment, the late 2018 moment where, you know, we decided to just throw it all, uh, you know, just kind of a bit of a Hail Mary and, you know, change the monetary policy, you know, the pivot, the rebrand, all of it. And, you know, I think we're, uh, we're pretty lucky uh, in, in a number of ways that, you know, we just happened to kind of, uh, you know, hit that, that inflection point in DeFi around about the same time. Um, but, you know, there was a part of me that, you know, always thought that this was pretty inevitable, right? You know, I, I was very, very uh, convicted that you know what we were doing made sense and that it was necessary and that you know there would that it would work in in spite of the skepticism right and the skepticism was totally reasonable you know i i think uh you know we had a, a number of debates on on twitter and in various places um you know back then and and you know the people like teo and you know who are still skeptical about you know can this work um but i i think you know my view was uh was that you know I, I really believe that the mechanism uh, would be successful. And, and so, you know, the vindication of kind of seeing the market respond um, and, you know, we're not there yet, right? Like we're not at a point where the, the cash flow from, you know, providing this, this service, uh, this decentralized service is sufficient to, to kind of, you know, keep the network going in, in perpetuity. Um, but I think we're getting closer and we're starting to see that, you know, there is genuine demand for it, which is, which is really good. And you had to have that conviction in 2018 to continue to work on what you were working on in, in 2019. <laughs> I, like at, yeah. at the time, like you, you mentioned it, um, USDC and even Tether, these centralized stable coins were uh, basically dominating, right? So it was very hard to be in the decentralized stable coin business. But another element that was very difficult uh, was there was no like onboarding of liquidity into DeFi at all. Mm. Like it was all through the centralized exchanges. And where were they going to route you? Well, they're going to list Tether. They're going to list USDC as mm. the trading pairs. And it almost seemed like to me, this kind of inflection point that, that you mentioned for, for DeFi uh, kind of uh, occurred as an ecosystem of money Legos, right? Um, like it seemed to me that Uniswap really started to feel, fuel a lot of the liquidity for this space. And that created almost a feedback loop for synthetics to um, become more successful and increase its volume. Did you feel that? Did you feel like the space was kind of you know growing together and that some of these other money Legos almost snapped into, into place to make synthetics much more feasible? Mm, absolutely. You know, Uniswap is a, a big deal, but I think, 
you know, we we really can't overlook the fact that it was Maker and and Die which facilitated this. You know, if there's if there's no Die, I don't think any of this happens, right? So you know, Die kind of enabled uh, you know things like Compound uh, to to really you know have this like symbiotic relationship, right? And and I think uh, you know even set protocol and dharma and like you know all of these things uh, the the ability to you know kind of believe that this is was workable i think a lot of that came from maker and so you know it's it uh, i i think it's it's something that maybe you know it's kind of overlooked these days you know people look at compound and you know the launch of the compound token as like this kind of you know moment but i think you have to go way way further back right to like late 2017 and, and the launch of die that was the the Genesis of DeFi. Do you still feel that cohesion in DeFi that like the ecosystem is all we're you know we're all kind of in it uh, together? I mean, look, it's gotten a lot noisier, right? You know, uh, back I think it was uh, you know just before DevCon, right? Like that was the first DeFi conference, and there were maybe fifty people in the room. Um, you know, and it, I, funnily enough, though, even then there was definitely a little bit of like uh, you know tension, right? Um, you know not everyone was necessarily friendly. There were, there was uh, you know, a bit of competition. And I, I think also, you know, we were definitely not in a, a mindset of abundance back then, right? It was a, a very much a scarcity mindset and, um, you know, and a little bit zero sum. And I think, I think that improved, you know, through 2019 as, as things started to kind of uh, heat up a little bit. Um, so I think that, you know, people are, are probably a lot more friendly these days than, than they maybe were even back then at, at times. Um, but, you know, it's much noisier and, and there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. So, you know, we don't have the same level of connectivity, uh, you know, with, with some of the projects just because it's, it's really hard with everything going on to, to stay connected. Hey guys, before we start talking about the Synthetic Spartans, we're going to take a moment to talk about the sponsors that make the Bankless Nation possible. Bankless Nation, do you want to go fully bankless, but in the real world, Monolith is the DeFi account that you need. It wraps your ETH address in a bankless Visa card, and it does so much more. It closes the loop from fiat to DeFi. So you can onboard fiat to DAI on Monolith with zero fees. Then you can convert that DAI to ADAI, which is an interest-bearing savings account. Again, zero fees. And then you can spend that interest in the real world on a Visa card. So you can finally buy your cup of coffee with interest earned in DeFi. Guys, this is magic. This is the closest thing to the Holy Grail crypto card and Monolith gives you all of it. You need to download the app at monolith.xyz to get your bankless Visa card. It's optimized for European listeners. They'll be coming to the US soon. And when you get that Visa card, the Monolith card, tweet about it when you do. I love seeing people unpackaging their beautiful bankless Visa cards. It makes me realize that the revolution is here. Search Monolith in the App Store. Ampleforth is a new base money experiment on Ethereum. Many people have heard of this new rebasing mechanism, and Ampleforth was the protocol to first introduce that into the Ethereum space. Ampleforth is very comparable to Bitcoin in the sense that it has a non-dilutive supply. However, there's one thing about it that's inverse with Bitcoin, whereas Bitcoin has a completely inflexible supply, meaning any demand for BTC, the asset, is therefore reflected in the price. 
And Ampleforth is the inverse of that, where Ampleforth is pegged to $2019, and any demand for the Ampleforth token is reflected in the supply of the asset, not the price of the asset. So the Ampleforth token tracks $2019 slowly over time. So it should never be too far away from $2019. And in order to achieve that goal, it adds or burns Ampleforth token supply so that the market generally prices it around the value of a $2019. It is definitely not a stable coin because the volatility of the value that you hold will fluctuate up and down wildly, but the token itself is supposed to track a dollar. Pretty interesting experiment. There's been a lot of spin-offs using this rebasing mechanism. They also have this liquidity mining program where you can supply Ampleforth and Ether tokens to the Uniswap pool and you'll be able to get an extra dividend of Ampleforth tokens from the Ampleforth geyser. So check them out at ampleforth.org and see if this is an experiment you want to partake in. I think the best piece of alpha that I think everyone knows about nowadays is that community is everything, right? And Synthetics is known for having one of the earliest and most, um, uh, the strongest communities in the space that, that we can really think of. Uh, and anytime some, some community generates this bottom up, like their own sort of uh, mascot or, or icon, then that's something to pay attention to. And like the Synthetic Spartans came really, really early. Was there any one particular moment that more or less like triggered the the Spartan meme or the instantiation of the protocol or the of the community around uh, Synthetics Protocol? Or was it more of just a grassroots kind of bottom up type of thing where people just for some somebody coined the term and then it just grew from there? How did how did the Synthetic Spartan meme come about? Well, I think it, it, it kind of came from G, right? You know, that was his avatar, uh, you know, so um, DJ and Spartan, right? Um, you know, his avatar in, in Discord was, uh, you know, uh, the um, one of the Spartans. And, and so, you know, when people started to feel that this community was really, you know, uh, cohesive and, and, you know, starting to solidify and they started looking around for, you know, what, he was one of the people that that really drove it, um, you know, and, and kind of uh, gave this identity of, you know, we don't give a fuck. We're just going to, you know, keep pushing here. And it doesn't matter if people don't believe in us. It doesn't matter if, you know, they're skeptical. Uh, we we know what we're doing and, and we've got a, a vision of where we want to go and we're just going to keep pushing through. And so I think that that was where it kind of, uh, that was the genesis. And DJ and Spartan for folks that aren't like on Twitter all the time, like many, like <laughs> probably all of uh, us here are, um, he, he's a pseudonymous uh, Twitter account, right? That uh, tweets about yeah. lots of things in DeFi, but was uh, an early believer, particularly mm. during the bear market in what Synthetics was, was doing. And I, I like the Spartans analogy because... There weren't a lot of you guys back then, <laughs> you know. There's the the three hundred, <laughs> the mighty three hundred, yeah. against. It was less than three hundred. <laughs> yeah, it was against all of the forces that that were kind of opposing it. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's fantastic that in crypto you're able to. I mean, we talked about uh, Chainlink God <laughs> recently in Ooh. our uh, episode with Vance, but crypto is able to attract these pseudo anonymous yet incentivized, very strong and very captivating and very, um, I guess, formative uh, community members. It's like, I have you seen that anywhere else? Like you were involved in developing, building communities before, but is that something unique to crypto in your mind? 
I, I really think it is. Um, and maybe it's also unique to like this time uh, on the internet and, and you know, uh, that people can really, you know, kind of uh, create a persona. Um, you know, I, I think there's been communities, you know, like IRC, you know, things like that, where, you know, people didn't necessarily identify with their, uh, you know, their, their real world uh, persona. Um, but I think the, the kind of, cut through and an amount of impact that someone can have on crypto Twitter as a, an anonymous account uh, is is much, much more powerful than anywhere I've ever seen it. Kane, can you compare and contrast what the community's energy was like uh, before and after uh, the introduction of the SIP process. And maybe maybe there wasn't any one formalized beginning of the SIP process, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that, you know, at, at some point there was this team-led uh, protocol changes, and then now it seems to be that there's this community-led protocol changes. During that uh, pivot between uh, the, the pre, the, the team governance to the community governance, how can you kind of compare and contrast the the community energy and, and you know self self actualization around um, the the stewardship of the protocol? I think the most uh, most tangible uh, immediate thing that happened when we introduced uh, SIPs was it forced the team at the time to be more transparent. You know, it it uh, put a check on our power, right? Like we weren't able to just arbitrarily do things we had to actually go through the process ourselves and it was something that i really strongly enforced um you know in the team right that we couldn't just pay lip service to this we were responsible for advocating for the positions and you know we would assign someone within the team to be the champion of that sip to go out to the community and and get it through and i think that that mindset then kind of you know uh, went through the team and then, you know, kind of further out into the community where they all of a sudden, again, it wasn't just paying lip service to this idea of decentralized governance. It was, you know, we were embodying it and we were, you know, actually, you know, forcing ourselves to participate in the process. And, you know, if we got it wrong and the community said no, then they said no. And it happened multiple times, you know, where there are things that before the SIPs, we would have just done it and then told them afterwards. And then all of a sudden, we had to tell them ahead of time and they had the ability to say, actually, no, you're not doing this. We don't want it. And maybe if, if you could uh, take a moment and define SIP and also uh, where it came from, which are the EIPs, and then maybe also comment and, on how and, and something like an SIP uh, would uh, enable community engagement. Yeah, so, you know, it, it's basically this idea of uh, a formalized document that uh, that, you know, uh, allows people to see what an improvement proposal is going to, to do, right? So, you know, there's a structure about here's why we think we should do it. Here's exactly what's going to happen. Here's the intent behind it. Um, and it, it puts, you know, uh, it puts a lot of structure around any change to the protocol. Um, so, you know, everyone can, can feel engaged with it. And one of the early ones that was rejected uh, was uh, this, uh, this proposal that I wrote um, to allow uh, people to migrate their escrowed uh, SNX tokens from one account to another. So the issue was that you know we one of the unintended consequences of the the staking rewards being locked for a year was that if you started staking with multiple different accounts, you could end up with this situation where you had to like maintain these accounts forever, 
right? And you know, if you abandoned one of them, you, there was a huge opportunity cost. So I proposed this idea of allowing people to consolidate their escrowed uh, tokens into a single account. And people said, no, we don't like that idea. We're worried that it's going to create like a secondary market for escrow tokens and, you know, uh, all kinds of unintended consequences. Um, you know, and, and it was funny because that proposal that, you know, I, I obviously there was I had a vested interest in getting it over the line because, you know, I had a number of accounts that, uh, you know, test accounts and things like that, that I was maintaining. And they basically said, bad luck. Sorry, you're not doing it. And it still hasn't happened to this day. So, and, and just to define SIP, it stands for Synthetic Improvement Pr uh, Proposal. And so this comes out of, you know, EIPs, which are th Ethereum Improvement Proposals, which came at, out of uh, BIPs or BIPs, which are Bitcoin Improvement Proposals. So there's the, there's just this common, uh, so, you know, something IP, which is how generally protocols, uh, and Maker has the same thing where they have Maker Improvement Proposals. So this is a common theme throughout crypto. So when when SIPs kind of just became a thing in the synthetics protocol and also in the synthetics discord, how did that change the team's relationship with the community, right? So now all of a sudden the community realizes that it has it has new voice, it has power, it has a way to uh, voice their wants and desires and then try and generate some sort of rough consensus about what the community wants. And then they realize that the, they can get the team to change things in the ways that they want. So how, how did this kind of change the team's relationship with uh, the, it's, your guys' community? So are, are the community, is the community now steering the ship, would you say? Or who steers the, the synthetic ship? I think the, the biggest immediate impact that it, uh, that it had was to uh, reduce this kind of uh, voting block of the team, right? Because now all of a sudden there were people uh, you know, who now core contributors, right, that, that we have that are funded via the, the Synthetics DAO, um, but, you know, we're, we're at that time funded by the Synthetics Foundation. Um, it was this idea that, you know, oh, there's the team and the team thinks this, right? Um, and then there's the community and the community thinks this. But actually what it, what it did, which was one of the most meaningful uh, impacts, I think, was to kind of break that up. And you would actually have people on the team who were like, well, I think this is a good idea. And then other people who didn't, and they would actually be in the community, you know, participating and, and kind of advocating for their uh, view. And it really had this impact of kind of flattening, you know, already we, we didn't have much of a, a hierarchy, but it allowed for, you know, someone in the team to disagree with me, for example, on a specific point and rally the community and get it over the line um, rather than, you know, needing to kind of, all of us agree and present a united front. You know, it really changed it to we're all members of the community. And even if we are funded by the foundation, uh, we still have the responsibility to you know, participate in this governance process the same way that any other token holder does. And because of the community being given a voice, did, did you see more community members enter the community? Did you see that community grow after that? I think what happened is as new people found out about the project and, and kind of, you know, joined the community, they really felt this like palpable sense of there's something different going on here. You know, for people who've been in crypto for a long time, you know, communities uh, are sometimes very shallow, right? You know, it's just a bunch of people that are holding the same bag, right? Um, but you know, I think in, in synthetics uh, at that time and, you know, even today, 
but you know, very specifically at that time, if you turned up in the Discord, you're like, holy shit, there's something going on here. Like people are very passionate about this. And I think for you know people with the right mindset who genuinely you know wanted to kind of participate in in a protocol and and you know have an impact, it was really attractive. And and they often stay. Every protocol should go through a bear market, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's where the community is forged <laughs> in the trenches. It's not in this bull market, yeah. like you know. 10x run up stuff <laughs> that's not where you build like the 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 core folks it's those that stick with you during the bear yeah exactly, exactly. so next step in the story of the synthetic spartan like uh community growth um growth story was the ability to leverage uh snx as like this engagement tool where you know you would purchase snx and then you would stake snx to access the inflationary rewards. And we were talking about this earlier when we uh, were talking about how the the community kind of rallied up to say that Kane's four-year happening uh, model was, was stupid and <laughs> there should be a more smooth uh, sm- smooth happening model. And again, this was this was a community getting a voice to rally for something that they, and advocate for something that they wanted in the in their protocol that they used. But then the um, the inflation rewards are is it was a whole new a whole new thing, and it started to create this feedback loop. Can you talk about how the inflation rewards impacted the growth of the community as well? So yeah, I think you know if you go back to to 2016, 2017, this idea of artificial scarcity, right? You know, there's only X million or X thousand or X billion tokens, right? And therefore, you know, if people want to use them. Uh, to pay for something, you know, in some system, and there's only so many of them, then the price will go up, right? Which, like, looking back on it, is just, like, idiocy, right? Like, it's so obviously dumb, right? But we were all, you know, uh, drinking the Kool-Aid, and, and, you know, I think we, we kind of thought this uh, might play out, right? But the, the thing that was missing was, you know, rewarding people for engagement, right? And I think that that you know, when I when I kind of looked at why the engagement was low and, and took a step back and, and really, you know, took a longer view, the thing that was obvious to me was, you know, back in the day, if you were going to spend, you know, I, I think the first time I set up a Bitcoin miner in, in like 2012, it took me like an entire weekend. I spent like 48 hours, didn't sleep, like, you know, sitting on forums, like reading different things, going through, you know, hardware, config issues, et cetera, to like get this Bitcoin miner set up. And the reason why I did it was A, I was interested, but B, I wanted to mine Bitcoin. I you know, thought it would be cool. And if I could mine some Bitcoin, that would be amazing, right? Um, and I think that that was the thing that was missing from all of these artificial scarcity tokens, right? It was, okay, we're going to um, send all the tokens out. Everyone's going to hold the tokens. And then we're going to ask them to do something. But there was no way of the protocol actually rewarding them. And so the change to the, the uh, monetary policy to add this inflationary component and reward people who were participating was the, you know, that was the thing that kind of kicked off this, uh, this cycle and, and really drove uh, adoption and engagement. So it seems like the thing maybe we thought was the secret sauce of Bitcoin or part of the secret sauce, this artificial scarcity and viewing that in a token was less important than the other element of the secret sauce, which was like uh, community network participation. Right. That's, I feel like what you unlocked with SNX. Absolutely. And, you know, we've seen it now play out multiple times subsequently, you know, things like uh, YFI and YAM and, you know, where people are are doing something that the protocol wants and earning tokens uh, from that. And it's an incredibly powerful, uh, you know, driver behavior. 
Okay, so the high-level roadmap so far for, during the Synthetics 2018 bear market is that you know the 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 community's kind of spun up. It's pretty it's pretty thin. Like it's le- less than 300, but 300 Spartans regardless. Uh, and then uh, hmm. the SIP process gets integrated. The community gets a voice, and then uh, there is in the inflation rewards that's built into that. So from for, if you're on the inside, what you are seeing is that the team is starting to listen to the community and the community is starting to like grow a spine, grow a voice. And then also what the community wants does end up actually end up getting built. And then not only that, but also you are able to get access upside, upside exposure to the growth of synthetics through the inflation rewards, meaning not, not only is the team executing to the will of the community, but also the community is getting engagement rewards, right? So you're able to stake SNX and get inflation rewards. And then we're also going to talk about the the farming rewards of Uniswap and and uh, S the uh, ETH S S ETH pair on Uniswap. Uh, but this is where we start to get this feedback loop, where after these things happen, and especially with these uh, inflation rewards. Uh, there starts to be the price increase of synthetics, right? And that's where I think synthetics first got on like a lot of people's radar when synthetics first broke a dollar. And then I saw DJ and Spartan on Twitter saying like synthetics is going to $6. And like my bear market pessimistic mentality is like, no, no way, dude. $6, that's not happening. Uh, and, you know, not too long ago, synthetics was, the token was at $7.5 a couple months, uh, a couple weeks ago. And so... At, the, at this point, we're starting to see this feedback loop where the price goes up and then more community gets created because more people are get, people are fundamentally interested in number go up, right? And so number goes up, people go into the Discord, they get engaged with the community, they've accessed the SNX staking rewards, and then and then price goes up further, right? And this is this to me, this is the story of the synthetics bear market turning into a bull market. And in my mind, synthetics. The synthetics platform, along with Aave and uh, perhaps along with Chainlink too, are the direct creators of this this bull market at large, right? And and perhaps even a little bit more credit to synthetics, and maybe even you specifically, Kane, because you are the quote unquote father of modern agriculture, because synthetics <laughs> created the whole concept of yield farming, right? So can you talk about uh, how? Uh, the community was able to access further rewards, SNX denominated rewards through uh, through both through staking, but also through providing liquidity to Uniswap, and then maybe tie that into how that's linked into the to the farms that we see nowadays. Yeah, so so you know all of the things that you described there are the the elements that I think are necessary but not sufficient, right? Like strong community. You know the uh, the you know this uh, inflationary reward feedback loop, etc. But I think it was it was still really critical that there was some belief that we're building something that was going to be useful, right? You know, if if we hadn't have had uh, this idea that you know we were building um, this derivatives platform, you know, after we pivoted away from the, the payment network and, you know, like, it's funny cause we've now come back to the point where SUSD is, is becoming quite useful and people, are using it. it's, <laughs> it's, you know, it's gaining traction, but you know, we've, we've thrown out the idea of, uh, transfer fees and, and transaction fees, et cetera. And, and now going to this, uh, this exchange fee, but I think we needed to have that core, uh, belief that we we're building uh, a protocol that was going to have utility. 
right? And you know that that was really important to uh, to kind of get people as they came into the community uh, to kind of you know uh, to engage. I think if there had been nothing there except for these feedback loops, it would have uh, it would have kind of petered out. But once we realized that you know we had this uh, this kind of SNX, you know, we had this inflation that we could direct at anything. Right, so we could direct it at you know our own protocol, but we could actually direct it at other things that were somewhat ancillary to you know to the protocol that we also needed, like liquid on ramps. And and what was really interesting is, uh, you know, we went through multiple iterations, different people proposing things. G was one of them, um, and you know Arthur and I actually were on the other side, as as often happens. You know, I was on the dumb side of the, the table, <laughs> um, and uh, and you know we we're like, oh, I don't know if it's a great idea. You know, it was still like I still have a bit of Bitcoin Maxi in me, right? Where I'm like, oh, I don't really like the idea of changing the monetary policy. I feel like we should be careful about that, etc. And you know, uh, it's taken a while to kind of beat that out of me, but I think the market finally has. Um, but, you know, we, we got to this point where we we're like, we need a liquid on-ramp. Um, we have Uniswap now. Uniswap is amazing. Um, you know, and we were one of the early projects that I think really saw the utility in, in Uniswap. Um, and we said, okay, let's try it. You know, we finally got to a point where the community was comfortable with like, okay, let's take an ETH, SETH pair, right? Where there's no impermanent loss. Um, you know, let's, let's direct some inflation at it. And, you know, we went, uh, from nothing to, you know, at one point, I think the equivalent of like 85,000 ETH, uh, in Uniswap, oh my God. right. Which was incredible for Uniswap, incredible for us. People were looking at us going like, what is happening here? You know, what's like, how is this even, you know, this was pre the, the total value locked, you know, crazy metrics that we're, we're seeing these days, you know, the idea that you could lock up 85,000 ETH uh you know over the course of like a month was pretty insane and and no one predicted i was just personally i was just surprised all this stuff worked like it was like wow (laughs) it's working (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely absolutely it was it was very it was eye-opening i think for a lot of people you know we'd had this belief that you could get behavior to kind of happen um and you know previously it was only sort of happening internally in this this kind of self-referential feedback loop as as you sort of said but all of a sudden we we're like this is real there's you know forty five thousand eth in there and forty five thousand uh synthetic eth like this is a real thing like eth is money this is real like people are putting real value into uniswap and you know into this liquid on ramp to get access to snx and and you know get access to this reward um, which I think, you know, that was really kind of the, the uh, you know, the crossing the chasm moment where people were like, okay, this, this works. And so to me, the last cherry on top for like this bull market story and how synthetics fits into, uh, into Ethereum is but in, the integration with Uniswap is, is hugely important because everyone loves Uniswap, right? But you guys also started to leverage Chainlink, right? And Chainlink has its own extremely uh, robust community as well. And you guys really, really needed a solution like Chainlink to exist in order to produce all your synthetic assets. And so now, like the, I, from what I'm guessing, I was I was not in the Chainlink community in the in the bear market, nor was I in the synthetics community in the bear market. But I'm going to go ahead and guess that when the integration between synthetics and Chainlink, you know, was announced and then was actually manifested, that there was some sort of melding of the communities, right? And so not only are protocols on Ethereum composable, but their communities are also composable as well. 
So can you, was there any sort of um, signal as a result of the integration between the, the protocols between the two communities? I think so. And, and you know, for the Chainlink community, uh, it was a very similar situation to, to the synthetics community, right? There was a lot of belief. They, you know, they believed in the value prop of what Chainlink was building. Uh, you know, they believed in, in the approach that was being taken and they, they believed in the utility that it would bring to the ecosystem, right? But belief is, uh, you know, only gets you so far, right? They needed it to actually manifest in, you know, someone putting their hand up and saying, yes, we want to consume this protocol. You know, this is something that we, we really see as beneficial. And I think Synthetics was uh, probably the first, uh, you know, protocol to really kind of go all in and say like, we're going, you know, we're doing Chainlink, this is it. We're going to, you know, deprecate our, uh, our external, you know, uh, sorry, our internal Oracle and, and move to this external Oracle. Um, and I think that that was, you know, huge validation for the community, right? The Chainlink community that like this thing that they'd been saying was going to happen all of a sudden, you know, this was the first example of it. And then, you know, you had a bunch of other, uh, other, you know, projects then, you know, kind of, uh, come along, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that we were one of the first to sort of go out there and say, this is the right solution. We've vetted everything. You know, we're really happy with not just the, the solution as it stood then, but our confidence in Chainlink's ability to, you know, augment and improve the solution over time to get it to a point where we really, you know, thought it was going to be uh, a long-term uh, solution for, for synthetics. So, okay, so n now here's where we are. Uh, it's in 2020. Yield farming is is now a thing, uh, thanks to the creation of agriculture. So thank you, Kane. Uh, we the synthetics community is is a community that you know other protocols would die for. Uh, the synthetics protocol is also integrated into other protocols like Chainlink, like Uniswap, uh, and then pa like and and more maybe more passively into protocols like Yam and Sushi. And so it's getting its own integrations kind of organically. Uh, and and the the SIP process is alive and well, and and th things are good. And from at least from my perspective of synthetics, so where are we going next, Kane? What, what's next for synthetics? What's next on the roadmap? So you know, there's there's still kind of three uh, broad pillars, right? That that you know are not quite there. Um, you know, we're we're seeing uh, decent volume, uh, decent exchange volume, but you know, it can it can grow much further, right? Um, you know, and we've seen. Uh, Uniswap curve, uh, you know, a lot of these AMMs uh, generating incredible volumes, you know, volumes that are outside what I think a lot of us believe could happen this year, right? Um, and so I think that, you know, that's something that we just need to to nail and we're working on a number of things to, to make that happen. Um, but then we've also got this other issue of, you know, supply constraints, right? So um, we need to get enough supply out there, which is, uh, which is ensuring that, you know, we've got ETH collateral, um, that, you know, it's robust and, and people can, you know, lock ETH and issue uh, SUSD. And then the final component is, you know, gas costs and, and latency and, you know, throughput, like we need to get onto uh, L2. Um, we need a, a scalability solution. And so we're working with the Optimism team uh, and, you know, that's that's moving along really well. And I think we're, we're kind of getting to a point where, um, you know, that's that's going to be something that uh, is is going to be the, the next kind of big phase shift for the, the project and, and you know, get us to be able to scale up to, you know, tens of thousands of users. Okay, so we've got three things. We've got volume, supply, and gas costs. Can we talk about each of those? So on the volume side of things, you guys today just announced uh, Synthetics Volume 
program. Uh, is that important? Can you tell us about that, Ken? It, it is. And, you know, the reason the reason why it's important and we wanted to, to kind of help to bootstrap uh, this process is that, you know, synthetics is a protocol. And at the moment, you know, it's fully vertically integrated and, you know, we have to build the protocol itself. You know, we have to uh, build, you know, all of the components all the way through to the DAP layer. Right. But eventually we want to get to a point where, you know, we believe that there are people out there who can build much better dApps, um, better wallets, better integrations, and can just consume the protocol uh, and abstract away all the complexity for their users. Right. And so this is our way of kind of starting that process and, and bootstrapping it by essentially, uh, you know, funding uh, this this rebate for people who directly integrate synthetics because we believe that you know it'll be a net positive for their users uh, over time but we need to kind of kickstart that and so you know this is a big deal it's something we've been planning for probably about six months um, and you know it's something that we think uh, we can get you know maybe ten or fifteen different integrators to to you know jump onto in the next uh, couple of months during the trial. All right, so that sounds huge. And on the supply question, I guess you, you mentioned ETH collateral. So last I had uh, looked at that, there was kind of a an initial amount, a capped amount of ETH collateral that uh, was going to be let in the protocol. Maybe already has been. Can you uh, can you give us an update on the status of ETH collateral? So there's some in there now. Is that correct? And then how are you looking to expand that? There is the the limiting factor though is is less the supply cap right now and more the fact that you can only borrow synthetic ETH against your ETH, right? So what it effectively uh, means is that you know someone who wants to uh, lock ETH and be able to you know do yield farming or trade or whatever uh, kind of has to short ETH, um, which is obviously not ideal. Um, so the next the next phase, which is hopefully you know three or four weeks away, is the ability like you can in in Maker to lock ETH and borrow SUSD the same way that you can lock ETH and borrow Dai, um, and so that will significantly expand the supply of SUSD. And will there be a cap on that? The amount of ETH that there you will be in, initially. Cap? Yeah, I probably be about five thousand ETH. Um, I think okay. initially, but you know, like Maker will will increase the debt ceiling and allow that to to kind of grow over time as we get confidence that you know liquidations are working and everything's working smoothly. Okay, so that's going to be for SUSD, right? So SUSD is almost would you would you say it's like a die alternative? And it, like one thing that I think the the bankless space has been really clamoring for is a very bankless stablecoin, the most decentralized stablecoins. There's tons of stablecoins in the space right now. Very few of them are decentralized. Maybe DAI can you know kind of hold that title, although it's starting to incorporate some more centralized assets as well. What's the vision for SUSD so far? What's uh, kind of governance thinking? Is it going to be a more decentralized alternative? Potentially, um, but you know, I, I think that what people are demanding in the market is uh, a kind of low governance, low complexity uh, ETH backed stablecoin, and I think we will see that. I think people will will build that. the The big question, right, is not you know will they build it, but can you actually bootstrap it, right? And so you know, the thing that uh, that I think you know Maker did incredibly well um, was uh, you know to to kind of bootstrap this initial liquidity, right? And I've said this on Twitter, that it's incredibly hard to do that. I think people, you know, massively under underestimate the amount of effort and, and you know, belief that was required to kind of bootstrap the, the initial die supply. And so, you know, I, I do think that we, uh, you know, we will be an alternative stablecoin, but there is a lot of complexity in the synthetics 
uh, ecosystem that you know maybe won't satisfy everyone. They might want something that's a, a little uh, a little simpler and, and less complex. So, what is the incentive for someone to deposit ETH to mint some SUSD then? Uh, well, arbitrage profit for one. You know, so if, if we're trading above the peg, being able to you know sell uh, and and capture that premium um, is the first thing. The second thing is you know SUSD is used in a lot of yield farming uh, systems. You know, you can go and deposit it into Curve to farm Curve balancer, etc. And and oftentimes the yield that's paid um, on SUSD is much higher than uh, on ETH. So it kind of makes sense to lock your ETH up get SUSD and use that rather than just depositing your ETH directly. But access to ETH overall as collateral, just on the supply uh, topic some more, you know, we've uh, written pieces on Bankless about this concept of um, economic bandwidth, right? Where, um, you know, the, the chain Ethereum in particular needs to have assets that are highly valuable and highly liquid in order to provide um, bandwidth for the entire DeFi financial system that's built on top. Um, the, the thesis in Bankless is that like synthetics has a limited amount of economic bandwidth right right now. So let's say the market cap of uh, SNX is 500 million. That means you can create like you know some um, proportion of 500 million in uh, in synthetics on top. But once you start introducing other economic bandwidth sources like potentially ETH, then you can start to create a lot more supply. Is that does that theory resonate with you? Is that kind of a an important aspect when you think about supply and when you think about collateral? Just collecting all of this all of these economic bandwidth sources from Ethereum. It is, um, you know, one thing though that I think uh, is really critical that you know we've we've kind of as a community uh, sort of you know leaned into is this idea that we only want to use permissionless collateral, right? We don't want to go down the the path of using you know uh, centralized stable points, et cetera, as collateral. Um, so, you know, being able to expand the, the supply of SUSD uh, on, you know, on the back of uh, ETH and maybe potentially, you know, with some tokenized uh, BTC representations that are permissionless, which, you know, we still need to kind of let them uh, play out a little bit, I think, before we'll get comfortable enough to, to use that. But, um, you know, the, the ability to uh, expand the SUSD supply which is now you know sitting at uh, around 100 million, which is kind of crazy, right? Like I'm sure you guys remember when Dai hit 100 million, it was this huge deal, right? And you know SUSD just quietly hit 100 million, uh, you know, a month or so ago, and it was wow, <laughs> I didn't even know that. Yeah, it was just like I was not tracking. Yeah, I, yeah but it's like we didn't even notice it, right? Like it was just like one day <laughs> we're like we're like oh wow, yeah, it's 100 million, right? Like it's just you know the the way that gone. Um, but the ability to expand SUSD out to like 500 million or a billion just requires uh, ETH, right? Like that's, it's just critical to, to the functioning of the system. So it's always been something that we've, we've considered. Um, and it was just about trying to find the right way to do it without undermining. And this is really critical without undermining the utility of SNX within the system. You know, SNX is still the backstop of the system. It's still the uh, the thing that, you know, accrues all the fees. Um, so, you know, there needs to be the right incentives for people to, to use ETH as collateral, but not undermine the incentives to use SNX. And a quick definition for our listeners. So when you say permissioned assets, you specifically mentioned ETH and you, you mentioned possibly some future version of a tokenized Bitcoin. 
But apart from that, are there other permissioned assets on Ethereum? And like, why isn't something like USDC, the stablecoin, not a permissionless asset? I mean, you've got uh, essentially uh, a custodian that's managing uh, the, the funds, right? That's managing the fiat that's in a bank account somewhere um, and then, you know, issuing essentially an IOU against it, right? So, you know, that's, that's a very different uh, type of asset to something like ETH, right? So, um, you know, I think maybe we could consider, uh, you know, like Maker using tokens on Ethereum, um, but even that, uh, is, you know, is, it brings its own issues, right? So I think for the time being, uh, you know, it will be ETH and then maybe adding, uh, you know, some, some tokenized BTC. Um, but to get the, the next step of adding, you know, ERC20 tokens as, as collateral, I think would be a, a stretch for the community, but we'll see. So when you say uh, that you'll be able to mint SUSD via your ETH, we listeners and correct me if I'm wrong, but listeners should also just be hearing that be, because you can just swap SUSD for any other synthetic asset, that you'll be able to maximally leverage your uh, ether deposits correct. to create any sort of synthetic asset. It just starts with SUSD first, right? SUSD is like the default; it's like the water, and it's the it's the substrate for going into any other synthetic asset. So it, you know, mm. maybe SUSD isn't really interesting to people because you know dollars aren't interesting to us because we're in crypto but it's just like it's the substrate token to get into every other synthetic asset right that's this is all true absolutely and you know you can go susd into sd5 for example which is you know a basket of all the different uh, DeFi tokens on ethereum so you know there's there's a number that you can go into gold for example right so if you want to um you know uh lock your eth and and get some exposure to gold but i think for for most people uh who just want this price exposure um probably the safest thing is you know take some of your stable coins for example and, and just buy susd and then convert it rather than uh, necessarily locking you know eth and, and uh buying gold but you know we'll see it's going to be interesting to see how, how that plays out and how much demand there is for for people to add supply and, and just participate that way, or if they actually genuinely want to lock ETH and, and start trading. Yeah, as we said before, I mean, I think ETH as economic bandwidth, trustless economic bandwidth or permissionless is the word you used, is, is definitely a bull case uh, and a uh, you know tailwind for ETH price. Uh, but we will see how that pans out and look forward to you guys uh, doing more with it and adding more with it. So we talked volume, we talked supply. The third area, which I think is uh, really interesting, is gas cost optimization, right? So we've been living in a gas price are down as we talk, as we're as we're recording this. But yeah, you know, I mean, they could be back up to four hundred next week. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, in one of our conversations, Kane, you, you had talked about the uh, the work that you're doing on rollups with OVM and with the Optimism team. Is like we had t- we had talked about. Well, kind of the main chain is like Manhattan, right? And this OVM solution, rollup solution, as a uh, a layer two chain that you're building is is almost like a Brooklyn, right? Um, where mm-hmm. it's going to have more space, the real estate's going to be a little bit cheaper, uh, and it's going to have more room for low cost transactions, essentially. So I'm I'm curious to hear your progress on on that, and how are you planning to make Brooklyn a place that other protocols want to live and users want to come to? 
So funnily enough, uh, I think we've gone a little bit over uh, time, which is totally fine, but um, (laughs) I was supposed to be on a a call with the Optimism team, uh, which I I told them uh, a few minutes ago that I I wouldn't be able to make. um, Oh, wow. That's a little bit funny. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I know. No, no, that's okay. It's totally fine. Yeah, no. We'll message them and apologize. Yeah. We have a weekly catch up uh, that we do um, that was like right after this, but, um, you know, obviously we're having a good time uh, here so I just told them uh, I'll catch up with them later uh, but you know tell them you'll show them on the pod <laughs> exactly right so uh, I typically do uh, and so so you know I think the heavy lifting of this is obviously on the optimism team right you know they're the ones who are building the solution um, you know we are we are kind of advocates for that solution and and that specific uh, you know uh, chain for a couple of reasons one um, you know, they're building something that is going to be uh, sort of, you know, optimized for getting people onto it as as easily as possible. Um, so, you know, with the most uh, minimal changes to contracts and, you know, ainly they'll just be able to deploy their existing mainnet contracts straight onto, uh, onto L2. Um, and that's important for composability because if we want, uh, you know, all of the fun that we're having now to continue, you know, in an L2 environment, we need those contracts to all be running on the same, you know, uh, optimistic rollup. And so, you know, they're they're working with a number of teams, but you know, one of my, uh, you know, main main jobs at the moment is like going out and talking to other projects and kind of you know, advocating for them uh, coming along and and you know, participating in this uh, this optimistic rollup uh, chain that you know the the OVM supports. And so, um, you know, that's that's something that is coming really soon, and I think is going to be uh, a huge. Uh, bonus, particularly for smaller uh, SNX stakers. So, you know, we've got this very problematic issue right now, which is that gas costs are so high uh, and, you know, the, the transaction complexity on synthetics is so high that people are priced out. You know, they actually can't even participate unless they've got, you know, a couple thousand SNX, for example, um, you know, which is maybe $10,000. So there's a, a whole range of people that, you know, are, are just unable to participate in, in the um, system right now, which is really problematic. So this uh, this first phase of the, the OVM migration is going to directly address that and, and really be targeting the people who've been kind of left out. Uh, you know, for the last uh, month or so with these high gas prices and, and trying to, you know, uh, make it a little bit easier for them to participate and, you know, reduce some of the, the costs that they've been experiencing. We were talking with Stani in the previous episode, and he, he said that if somebody builds a great Brooklyn, you know, Ave will be like first to try to get in there. Um, have you been coordinating with any of the other DeFi protocols uh, toward this, or is it mainly a synthetics initiative? Uh, no, no, I've definitely been. You know, I speak to Stanny uh, a couple times a week. Um, you know, so I've I've been advocating uh, for this. You know, with most of the DeFi uh, projects out there that you know that we talk to, um, and obviously, you know, the Optimism team are working on that as well. But uh, it's one thing for you know the the project itself to say, "Hey, come and you know." Uh, play in this, you know, this place that we built. It's another thing for, you know, a project uh, to say, hey, like we've done our DD, we're really comfortable, this is the right approach and, and we're going all in on it. Um, so I think that, that that carries a lot of weight. Uh, and so I'm, I'm very hopeful that, you know, we'll be able to have uh, some of the, the critical money Legos, uh, you know, over on this optimistic uh, roll-up shard very, very quickly. Very cool. Uh, very quickly. Any timeline on that? <laughs> 
just curious. <laughs> I mean, look, you know, the options and team have said uh, mainnet by the end of the year. Uh, I think we'll have some interesting uh, progress even before that, um, you know, specific synthetics progress to, to, you know, as I said, alleviate some of the, the gas uh, price issues. Um, so, you know, it's going to be a phased approach, but we're working really hard to try and get this done ASAP to, to get, you know, kind of pseudo mainnet uh, stood up to, to kind of help with the, the gas costs for stakers. Well, 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 that sounds fantastic. <laughs> I'm really looking mm. forward to that. Lower gas prices. Um, one other topic I guess on roadmap is how the whole synthetic space is shaping up. Uh, so there's this idea that a decentralized BitMEX uh, might might come about, and synthetics is certainly part of that story, but there are some other protocols as well that have maybe some different uh, trade-offs. So of course, there's Maker, which is you know produces dye, which is a synthetic in itself. But then more recently, there are protocols like the UMA protocol, and there's, of course, DYDX that takes a more order book-based approach. And then there's uh, newer protocols like the Perpetual protocol. Just curious, high level, what are Synthetics's advantages uh, or maybe some of the trade-offs relative to those other uh, initiatives? So I think the, the main trade-off um, with something like UMA is that uh, you know, we don't have the ability to uh, issue the exotic uh, assets that they do, right? Um, you know, because they have uh, this kind of priceless oracle uh, approach, uh, they don't rely on a liquid market externally to, to pull a, a price feed in from. Um, so, you know, they can do uh, they can do all kinds of weird exotic uh, instruments, which I think is really cool. Um, but the flip side of that is that you know each of those instruments or, or you know assets needs to bootstrap its own liquidity um you know as, as we've kind of seen with their early experimentation uh that can be somewhat challenging sometimes so um you know getting liquidity in this environment right now is really really hard right like you know if whatever liquidity premium you've been able to kind of accrue uh, is a huge advantage. And, you know, obviously we've seen things like, you know, the vampire mining from you know, Sushi <laughs> to, to Uniswap, which is which is a whole other topic that, uh, you know, we could spend a long time talking about. But, um, you know, liquidity modes are still, uh, I think, a, a big deal. Um, and so, you know, for us, uh, the fact that we've got, you know, $100 million worth of SUSD and I think, you know, $130 million in since uh, is a, a big advantage that we've got. Do you think like uh, designs like DYDX also suffer from that, like lack of, um, or the, the liquidity challenge as well, that essentially when you're doing something in synthetics, you're, you, you already have this nice pool of collateral and you kind of bet against the house, right? And that's, uh, that can be advantage yeah. for liquidity. Absolutely. You know, it, it definitely creates, uh, it creates, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of advantages. And, and you know, one of the things that it will enable, um, which we've talked about a little bit is this idea of uh, tokenized bridges between uh, pools like uh, Curve, right? So, you know, Curve uh, is this AMM that is really amazing at allowing you to convert different assets that track the same price. So, you know, USDC, USDT, DAI, SUSD, et cetera. And then, you know, tokenized Bitcoin um, and, you know, tokenized gold. But, it requires that you know all of those assets uh, track the same price within the same pool, and it's hard to bridge the liquidity across. But what Synthetics is potentially going to be in it, able to to do is be the bridge between two different curve pools. So you can imagine a, a curve pool that had you know ETH and SETH, and then a curve pool that had you know SBTC, 
tBTC, RenBTC, and RapBTC, you'd be able to go ETH into RapBTC via this uh, tokenized bridge in these curve pools. And you know, I, I'm very confident in the next couple of months we'll see you know ETH to to RapBTC transactions in the you know uh, millions of dollars on chain. Kane, I want to turn the conversation to regulatory compliance uh, because you know we kind of, there's always kind of this. Uh, this monster in the back of crypto where with it, which is like the nation state, right? This thing that is inherently generally, it has an adversarial stance to probably some of the shenanigans that's going on in this space. Uh, and so how does, how do you guys as, you know, the centralized synthetics team think about compliance uh, and like what would happen if some regulatory three letter agency came in and said like, all right, you guys need to implement like KYC. If that happened, what what would be the next steps for the the synthetics team? So I think this is this is kind of a, a critical point, and it's maybe you know the the other pillar that uh, that we didn't talk about, uh, you know, amongst those three, which is just generally decentralization and and decentralized governance, and getting to a point where you know the protocol is sufficiently decentralized that a regulator would look at it and say, well, this is something that you know we can't actually capture, we can't shut down. Um, you know, is similar to, to you know where uh, I think you know the the Ethereum uh, protocol got to, right? You know where the SEC said, well, it's sufficiently decentralized that you know we don't believe it's a security, we don't believe that it's within you know our kind of uh, purview to to regulate this thing. Uh, maybe it's someone else's, but you know we're not going to step in. And I think that that was uh, you know a, a very calculated decision on the basis that you couldn't really regulate Ethereum. Right, it was genuinely uh, sufficiently decentralized. You know, you couldn't just go and round up Vitalik and ask him to, you know, turn off the master node. Right, that wasn't a thing. Um, and so, you know, I think that <laughs> I think that uh, we are getting to a point now where, for example, you know, if you said to me, "Shut it down," I actually can't. You know, like I don't have any power that would allow me to uh, to shut down the protocol. You know, the oracles are are now decentralized. Um, you know, governance is decentralized. Uh, we've got three different DAOs that control protocol upgrades and distribution of funds, et cetera. Um, and, you know, there's no single party within, uh, within the protocol that has uh, a level of control that could actually stop it. And I think that that's something that's only really happened in the last, you know, three months where we've gone to that point. So I want to drive this home for listeners because I think there's a lot of people that haven't uh, totally appreciated how bullish specifically synthetics it is for synthetics to be completely decentralized and and how bullish it is for the rest of DeFi, right? Because coming coming out of realty and what is what is going to be coming out of realty is the realty asset, which is uh, an aggregate token that has the value of all of the real estate of the realty platform like underlying the asset, including the rental income, right? It's 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 all of realty tokenized into a single token. And that token is unfortunately going to be whitelisted because that's how security tokens work. Like Realty is an American company uh, and therefore it, it answers to the SEC and, and no one in Realty has any interest in you know, going against the, the regulations of the SEC. However, what can happen when this asset is created is that synthetics can just make a synthetic Realty asset which is then therefore completely permissionless and then has all the robustness of the decentralization of synthetics, right? And so any sort of token that comes to Ethereum that is KYC'd and permissioned can have its decentralized permissionless counterpart on synthetics. Kane, have you thought about this, this potential world? We have, and, and, you know, obviously there's lots of discussions around, uh, 
you know, which assets we should support and, you know, ensuring that there's enough liquidity for them, et cetera. Um, and, and so I think, you know, the only constraint for us is really liquidity in the, the sort of primary market that the asset trades, right? Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting to think about uh, assets that are also on Ethereum uh, for which, you know, we can we can kind of directly pull a price feed, right? That there's already an existing price feed. Um, and so something like, uh, you know, Realty, I think is a, a good, candidate to create like a permissionless version a little bit how you know people have made like wrapped nexus mutual to avoid the the kyc and, and allow it to be sort of you know openly tradable um so i think that that's something that is going to emerge over time where you know you see these uh permissionless variants of uh of security tokens and and various things but then you know the same thing goes for like synthetic tesla right you know a synthetic tesla share uh, that, you know, is, is totally open and permissionless and, you know, can be purchased by anyone anywhere in the world, as long as they've got, you know, in, in, internet connection. So we, we talked about, um, playbooks for capital formation really quick, uh, Kane, as we, as we start to wrap up here, you mentioned the Overton window has expanded, which means there's basically more possibilities for crypto native DeFi native founders to essentially raise capital. And you put out this excellent tweet thread that we can link to in the show notes that sort of talks about some of those things. Um, are, are you starting to see that manifest now? Are like, what advice, I guess, would you give a crypto native DeFi protocol founder like yourself on just capital formation? Yeah. I, I you know, one of the nice things about, uh, getting, you know, uh, out of crypto winter and you know, maybe crypto spring or, you know, whatever, uh, maybe starting to kind of head into a bull market is that, uh, the, the ability to raise capital and the power kind of shifts, uh, into the back into the hands of founders, right? You know, we've gone from a situation where, you know, six months ago, 12 months ago, it was almost impossible to raise capital to a situation now where, uh, you know, founders and, and project teams can dictate, uh, you know, terms, which is good. Um, it's good in the sense that, you know, it allows for people to do the things they want to do rather than being forced into, you know, specific things. And so I think the ability to, you know, raise money directly into a DAO, uh, which was probably going to be almost impossible, you know, six months ago is now very possible. And we're seeing a lot of that. And so, you know, the ability to, to avoid the need for a foundation and, you know, having all of this uh, infrastructure uh, around a project uh is is good the flip side of that is it means you know less uh sort of protections for uh you know investors and participants in protocols um, which is going to lead to you know losses and scams and things like that um, but i think you know it's a it's a double-edged sword and so you know you'll see uh protocols that will do the right thing and and projects that will do the right thing and be far far better for it for being able to kind of dictate terms and, and launch in the way that they want to um, and then, you know, you'll see you know, some, some losses and, and inefficiency on the other side of it. All right. So, uh, crypto native founders going crypto native and capital formation is, uh, sounds like that's the way to go. Um, all right. So just cause it's fun, just cause we're in a bull market, just a final question for you, Kane price predictions, my friend. <laughs> so ETH price end of this year. So December 2020 what do you say and then in three years what do you say and how about the same for total locked value in DeFi? so i think that there's a, a very decent chance that uh it will be back over a thousand by the end of the year um you know depending on on the macro uh conditions that we're in um in three years time 
Hard to say. Uh, you know, that's that's probably too far out for me to even, uh, you know, try and make a prediction uh, just because of the way crypto cycles work. Um, but, you know, I certainly hope that we'll get to a point where, you know, if uh, if ETH 2.0 is launched, uh, the price will be you know far higher than it is today in, in three years. Um, and then, you know, total value locked. It wouldn't surprise me at all, uh, you know, over the next 12 months to see you know, 50 billion in, in total value locked or, or more. There you go. That is bullish. And uh, Kane, it's been a pleasure when we talked about particularly the synthetics roadmap, the future volume, supply, uh, gas costs, and increasing decentralization. Uh, that, that's a very bullish roadmap, sir. And uh, the Bankless Nation is, is looking to you guys and the synthetics governance to pull it off. Very excited about all of that. Kane, thanks for joining us today. Thanks. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Really appreciate it. Awesome. All right, Bankless Nation, uh, some action items for you guys. We have included a link to the new volume incentive program that we mentioned on the show. Also a link to Kane's thread that we mentioned. You should also get involved in synthetics governance. There's a link to that as well. Uh, getting, getting involved in these protocols is the way you learn about them. That's the Bankless way for sure. We also have included a tactic from Bankless on how to use synthetics. So if you're just warming up to it, if it's just your first time, you can check that out as well. Finally, we are looking for your five-star reviews on Apple iTunes. David, we're at 154. So we want to get to 200. We want to get to 300. We want to get to 500. We, need, we, need uh, we to, want a bull run. We need to break Ether price, right? This, <laughs> yes. this is how it works, right? Uh, we are going to get the Bankless podcast to the top of the iTunes chart as this, as this bull market continues. And we need your help to do so, right? We are now in the top 100 of the iTunes investing and finance uh, categories for podcasts. And I totally think that in one, two years, we're going to be in the top 10. Uh, but we need your help to get there. So if you could go to wherever you listen to your podcast and give us those five-star reviews so we can spread the Bankless Nation across the world, we would really appreciate it. All right, let's do it, guys. Risks and disclaimers. ETH is risky. So is SNX. Crypto is risky in general. So is DeFi. You could lose what you put in, so be careful out there. But we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the Bankless journey. Thanks a lot.